Hello, Julian. Hello there, Mike. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you very much. And I'd like to welcome everybody to the... Next series. Is it, is it season two? Season two, episode three of season Veterinary two. Ramblings. Episode two, is it really? It, episode three of Veterinary Ramblings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Episode three, two, three. episode three. Great. Right, Great. so we better. So, so now we know what we're doing. We better, yeah. we better, we better do it properly, hadn't we? So. Well, we're thoroughly professional now. We've got a whole season under our belts, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. hello everybody, and welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. My name is Mike Brampton, and my name is Julian Hode. That was pretty professional, actually. I, I think that was. It sounded professional. I thought you were great, Mike. Very good. Do you, you realise the average age of our audience has gone up to nine years old now? Has it really? Yeah. It's a bit it's worrying, amazing. isn't it? Perhaps we should stop doing the children's show. It's <laughs> <laughs> we should be we should be entertainers, should we? Children entertainers. Yeah, yeah. I, I see you've got your gin tonight. I've got mine. No kids, this is lemonade. Uncle Mike's also got a glass of lemonade. And today we're going to be talking about how ethanol is very bad for you. When you're grown up, you should never, ever have it. Look, this is why. Watch later. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. We'll show you why ethanol, a.k.a. alcohol, or a.k.a. gin, is really bad for you. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Ho. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Listen, we've got a great show lined up tonight, I think. Who have we got on tonight? Fabulous guest. Hmm? Tell us about our guest, Julian. Well, I do actually know about our guest because he is Neil Forbes, mm -hmm. who wears many hats, although none as sleek as yours, actually, Mike. He is uh, an exotics expert specialising in birds. Uh, he's oh. past president, I believe, of the European Exotics panel. He holds specialisms in, uh, in, in in birds from the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons and from the European Board. Mm -hmm. uh, he's also very heavily involved these days in antimicrobial resistance. Well, okay. Well, let, let, let's get him in. I, I, I remember meeting Neil many, many years ago, and he sent me on quite a mission. Um, maybe we'll share that. Let's get Neil Forbes in. Let's get him in. We need to press the button, I think. Here he is. No, I pressed the button. I pressed. Neil! Good evening, Mike. Good evening. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Yourself? Very, very good indeed. Evening, Julian. Good evening, Neil. Good to see you. And you too. Thanks for, thanks for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be here. And you've got a top on that's nearly, nearly, but not, not really as nice as mine. <laughs> that'll be a cartel it'll be fine yeah yeah don't do this at home yeah actually you know, what we ought to say is that if something does go awry then we sort of, we sort of go yeah and cut and and it just gets cut uh, out and then they cut that piece and put it in specially yes yes it's yeah. all seamlessly <laughs> can, can i just tell, tell you a story about that situation okay yeah. so the, there was a television program called pets behaving badly and whenever these sorts of things happen uh the producers or their researchers get on the phone to all sorts of veterinary surgeons and say oh do you know of a a client um who who you know has got a pet that would work for this and in this particular case um 
I had a client with a, a little parrot, and um, this parrot was uh, basically imprinted on the owner and, and basically wanted to breed with the owner. He was a hand-reared bird, so was, okay. So you get you get the picture. So lots of bad behaviour, and anyway, the, the, it all sort of worked out well. So the television crew went to her house, and this was a, a, a middle-aged spinster, you know, pillar of the local church and all that sort of thing. And they filmed all morning, and then they broke for lunch. And during the lunch break, the little parrot flew over and did its normal thing, which was masturbating on the owner's head. And of course, the cameraman caught it. <laughs> and this poor lady was absolutely devastated because the only thing they showed of her in the real program when it came was this little clip. And you imagine, you know, I mean, she was distraught, and understandably so. <laughs> so for, for people who are not watching this but are listening on audio, uh, you, you might have, have heard that wonderful story, but you, you missed the expression on, on, uh, on both of our faces. <laughs> as, as we've got a big fit of the giggles. This is, yeah. uh, this is good stuff. So birds, birds, Neil. Yeah. Birds, talk to us about birds, because you and I met probably... About 1987, 88. And, and I was working on a project trying to make an, a pulse oximeter work mm. in birds. Yep. And you very kindly gave me a whole range of different birds to use my physiological skills to dissect mm-hmm. and work out where the major blood vessels were running. Yep. Yep. Because obviously a swan. Yes, essentially, the, the growth <laughs> to me is the same. Sure, sure. One has got a long neck, and a parrot has got a very short, short neck. neck. Yeah. So if I'm going to measure, if we're, if we're going to develop and measure something between the two, mm. um, then we... It's we, a real challenge. And it's one of those things a lot of people forget. You know, they think normal veterinary practice, cats, dogs, or farm animals, or horses, yeah. oh, there's, there's just birds, and they forget that there's over 9,000 different species, and they come in different sizes, they eat different things, they locomote in different ways, and yes, their anatomy and physiology does vary tremendously. Yeah. Mm. I, I found that fascinating. Parrots, of course, have no gallbladder, do they? Sorry, who didn't? Parrots. Indeed, they don't. <laughs> They're not. No. 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 There we go. 101, I did not know that parrots did not mm. call blood. Mm. 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 So if you're, if you're trying to ultrasound a parrot and you think, oh, God, I can't find the gallbladder, that's fine. That's normal. That's good. So if you do find a gallbladder in a parrot... That's a bad thing. Either right. it's not a parrot or you found something other than a gallbladder. Right. But, you know, I mean, quite seriously, tall speaking... Uh, you know, whether you're using a drug in a different species, you're doing a surgery in a different species, no one for one moment would think that a cat or a dog would be the same or a horse or a cow would be the same. So actually, why should a chicken and a pigeon be the same? Mm. They are different species. And, and, uh, and, and they do have uh, very different drug tolerances, don't absolutely, they? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Do, you, do you actually still see clients, Neil? Is that? Rarely, rarely. Yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I left um, Great Western Exotics at uh, Vetsnow in Swindon in 2017, 
And then okay. since then, I had some sort of uh, family stuff to sort out, and, and then I've just been doing consultancy work and um, some zoo inspections, some training, some lecturing, um, some expert witness work, not very much, um, and uh, some welfare inspections, so pet shops and, uh, and so on. And then, of course, I'm majorly involved in my, um, my voluntary vulture work. Now... I'm, there are three things I really want to chat to you tonight about, and, and one of them is the vulture work. The, the other is um, is your antimicrobial mm-hmm. work, and the the other thing is uh, about welfare of of caged birds because that's uh, oh, that's really close to my heart. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, but I don't know how we're going to cram them all in. We, we may be here well, till the which, which we start. Should we start on the the easiest one? Which was probably the welfare of birds in cages. Yeah, could we do that? Because we had um, we had Matt Rendell on recently, mm. speaking mm. about uh, people buying uh, exotic animals without the faintest idea of how to look after yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, now with, with birds, uh, there's an even bigger problem because I think birds suffer mentally hugely absolutely tiny cages not being allowed yeah 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 no i'm completely with you there and you know obviously i'm i'm someone who spent 35 years um of a career working predominantly with birds um and uh, you know i can honestly say that my my view and my understanding and belief about it all has varied over that period of time Mm -hmm. but i think it's very true to say that just because people have kept parrots in cages um by themselves for 300 years does not make it right Mm -hmm. um if the more time you spend studying and looking into behavioral problems in particular feather plucking in in parrots the more you appreciate that a bird plucks because it is failing to cope with some aspect of its husbandry or management Mm -hmm. and yes you can do all sorts of health screens for this that and the other but the fundamental underlying problem is this is a gregarious bird that should be flying free in the wild and taking it and shoving it by itself, particularly if it's been hand-reared, so it's completely mentally screwed up, um, shoving it in a single cage, and, and you become, that family becomes that bird's uh, surrogate family. And then you go out to work or go to school, and the bird sits in a cage by itself for six or eight hours a day, and they expect it to grow up normally. You know, it's, yeah. it's like taking, I mean, if you think about a parrot, it's like a, in, in terms of mental ability, it's about like a, a three-year-old child. Would you put a three-year-old child in a cot in an empty bedroom and leave it for eight hours a day and expect no. it to grow up normally? No, of course you wouldn't. I, I realized um, I, I was nodding then and you were saying, would you put a three-year-old? They, they might, might would, obviously. Well, so well, rest, of, course, of course he would. The, the parrot is a flock bird, isn't it? it, it absolutely, it, it, absolutely. It's a flock, so it's got, yeah, its, yeah. Own, it's got its own immediate family unit. Yep, yep. But then that family unit is, is as part of... Part of a big flock. A yep. major flock, isn't yep. it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the normal parrot spends 50% of the day flying to and from feeding. It spends 30% of the day playing with other members of the flock and, 20, and, and, and eating. Um, and it spends about 10% of the day resting and not doing very much. So oh, you look yeah. at your pet bird and you say, okay, so how long does he take to fly anywhere? Zero. How long does he take to eat anything? Well, it's in a bowl in front of him, you know, uh, so probably maybe 20 minutes in the day. Um, and how long does he spend with have, actually having companionship and stimulation from the family? 
half an hour if he's lucky. So what's he going to do? He's, he's going to develop behavioral problems. He's going to get mentally screwed up and have a lousy time. So when I say it's the simple one, it, it is the simple one in terms of it is, to my mind, absolutely wrong. There are already some European countries where keeping a single bird in a cage is illegal. And I think that's absolutely really? appropriate. Yeah, it's sweet. Um, Which countries are those now? Sorry? Which countries are those? Is it, I, it may well be Sweden. It could be Belgium as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not mm. sure. But there is a big, big movement about the keeping of exotic pets as pets in the first place. And, and Matt obviously touched on it. Um, and the, the European government... Um, the EU government, uh, parliament, and the Federation of Veterinarians of Europe are both completely opposed to it. Um, and in fact, um, I'm trying to think how many years ago, it would have been probably 10 years ago now, I, at a time when I was president of the European College of Zoological Medicine, I had to go and make a presentation to the European Parliament about it. And the, the basic, you know, everyone, in principle, people know how to look after a cat or a dog. When it comes to exotic animals, they simply don't. Now, there has been a very sensible, proportionate solution put forward, which is supported by the British Veterinary Zoological Society and the British Veterinary Association, which is basically that you divide animals uh, in terms of how difficult it is to keep them. And you make training mandatory so basically someone could go online they do a certain amount of training and then yes they can get themselves a budgerigar and mm. when they want an african gray parrot they have to do some more when they want a macaw or let's say a lizard or or a snake you've got to do more so basically in that way because an awful lot of people would like to ban the keeping of european pets that actually won't work it will just push it underground yeah. which will yeah. then mean when they get sick they don't get treated they get no advice from the veterinary profession. One of their criticisms, and I have to say there's a lot of justification, one of the criticisms is if they go to a vet, they typically don't get told anything very useful because most vets know nothing about exotic pets, um, mm -hmm. and that's because it doesn't get taught at university. But, and, and, and that's where we should advise exotic animal owners to go to exotic vets. Anyway, that's another subject. So... What we were trying to do was to actually suggest that um, no one has exotic pets unless they have training. They do training um, and a little bit of training for a simple animal, a lot more training for a more complex animal, and ones that really shouldn't be kept at all, you know, the killer whale or whatever, obviously are completely off, off the grid. Now, there are some European countries who have gone the other way. They have what's called a positive list, which means they have a list of maybe a dozen exotic animals which you are allowed to keep and nothing else you are allowed to keep. Right. Some countries go for what's called a negative list. In other words, these are the ones you can't, but everything else you can. Whereas BVA, BVZS have gone along the line of, uh, there are some you definitely can't, but all of them you have to, you should have to undergo some training in order to be able to keep it and step it up and step it up and step it up. Now, when I, when I spoke to the EU Parliament, um, I put this particular policy forward and they said, okay, well, you've got 10 years to get it in place and sort the problem out because if it hasn't happened after that time, we're going to ban it. And that was 10 years ago. 
So they're going to ban the. Well, they they would like to. I mean, it's true. It's true to say that some countries, uh, Netherlands is one, and the Belgium is certainly another, and Sweden I think is another, where quite a lot has been done. Um, whether it's been done, you know, in a sympathetic way is debatable. Um, and certainly, at that time, as president of ECZM, we we were trying to get to a point where actually people like ECZM, so they were the specialists in exotic animal medicine across Europe, mm-hmm. um, get them to actually put forward a solution that would suit every country in Europe. Because it doesn't make any sense at all for one country that's next to another country to have totally different rules on what you can keep right. and how you can keep yeah. and how you can buy it and how you can sell it. Um, so it's a nightmare. It does need to be sorted out. And one has to say um, there are a lot of animals that are suffering as a result of, of poor knowledge. Um, I mean, give you a, a strange statistic. The animal that is most commonly found in a bedroom, is kept in a bedroom, is a reptile typically because they're kept by a teenager and the parents don't actually want it. So the teenager keeps it in the bedroom. Uh, A, you know, start off with the premise, every reptile has some and other less proven otherwise. Actually, having it in a bedroom is not a smart place for it to be. The parents don't know what's going on with it. I guess they could be feeding their dog raw food as well, couldn't they? So um, Absolutely. They'll, they'll be they'll be similar downstairs, so that's all right. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, you know, it, it's 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 a crazy, crazy situation, and uh, I I have to say, as an exotic animal, um, you know, someone who's worked in uh, head of a referral exotic animal service for fifteen years, twenty years, um, and and a specialist in avian medicine, I, you know, I would be completely in favour of a complete overhaul of the keeping of exotic animals. Um, mm-hmm. For the better, for the improvement of the welfare and also human safety, um, uh, but but primarily the, the welfare of the animals. And to give you another crazy statistic: if you look at the data now on importation of animals into the UK for sale to the the uh, the pet trade, ninety five percent of it is fish. Some of that, some of them are captive bred. Hmm. but an awful lot of them are wild caught. Yeah. Now, have we not learned enough about taking mammals from the wild, reptiles from the wild, birds from the wild? You know, one of the few areas that has not yet been completely fished out is the seas. And, and, you know, okay, I know there are those people who will argue that there are local communities who are actually... um, earning a living they're feeding their family based on farming of fish for the pet trade and and where they are actually properly captive farming it i don't have a problem but the reality is it doesn't make it right though does it it doesn't make it right i mean why should you take a little tiny fish and fly it from one end of the world to the other end of the world for someone to get joy sitting in a sitting room in the uk that does to me that does not make sense at all no. Um, so, you know, I think there are some things that really need to be sorted out and uh, uh, importation of, of wild caught fish is, is one that I think is uh, morally incorrect in this day and age. I, I think I couldn't agree more with you, Neil, actually. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I go even further than that to say that, that I think people should take an exam in order to look after rabbits and guinea pigs. I, yep. I mentioned Sweden earlier because I know Sweden has a ban on keeping single guinea pigs. Yeah. Yeah. It's illegal to, to, to keep one guinea pig. Yeah. Um, there are so many guinea pigs and rabbits that I see 
as a as a general practitioner, I'm not an mm. exotic specialist, mm. Mm. general practitioner, that I see through reasons of neglect. Yep. Yep. And yep. as soon as you say that to the owners, you, you lose them. Yes. You, yes. you lose their attention. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to say, you oh, know, what a lovely little pet. How you do it? Oh, fantastic. Mm. What I would do is this instead. And sort of molly. Mm. Whereas what I really want to say is, you are a bastard. Mm. Why have mm. you decided to keep this without looking into what it needs yes. as an animal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And rabbits rabbits are a good example. You know, obviously a, a common pet nowadays. And, you know, we're thrilled that the rabbit is now, generally speaking, a house rabbit. It's not in a hutch at the bottom of the garden being totally ignored or looked after by the children. Um, but there are other problems that come in. And, you know, if you look at the problems that rabbits have, particularly dental problems, you know, so much of that is down to nutrition, um, yeah. 99% of his nutrition, maybe a little bit of lack of daylight as well. But, you know, and, and a lot of their gut problems, again, lack of fiber, too much carbohydrate, too much protein in the diet. So, you know, there's, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and if we compare that with the cat and the dog, then there are few cats and dogs that come in with basic, they've been fed the wrong food, mm. um, or, or in the the wrong way, um, and and you know there are other problems with rabbits as well. Yeah, so there, I, there, are, there are obesity problems in dogs and cats. Yes, um, which I guess is is a, is a different thing. There are obesity problems in humans. Yeah, um, and you need only dip the camera down to to, to see that here. But you, that's a that's a different form of neglect. I think mm-hmm. the, the, the primary neglect is is with not knowing the faintest thing about the the species you're keeping. Yeah, and that, yeah. that, that's that's what gets to me. And I think, as you say, gets and, to you. And I think that you know, the, I mean, there are a number of factors. Pet shops um, are obliged to provide information on correct husbandry at the t- point of sale. Historically, they would just have books for sale, and of course, by the time someone's buying a rabbit, they're not going to buy the book. Nowadays, they have to be given a booklet um, to take home with some information. And and I would dearly love, you know, and, and I was busy giving a webinar on rabbit medicine just the other night with Molly Varga. And, you know, I, if you say, well, where's the problem? You know, if the shops aren't going to give them any better advice, the next port of call should be the veterinary profession. Yes. So yeah. how many vets, at that time of the first consultation, how, how many vets actually sit down and talk about proper nutrition dental care, fly strike prevention, uh, management of their coats, their ears, um, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, and to do that properly, it's a minimum of half an hour. And the answer oh. is, they're yeah, not, in, unless you go to an exotic practice where, you know, usually a consult period will be half an hour because they will be trying to do it properly. Yeah. Um, but in a general practice, they are not going to spend half an hour. And with the best will in the world, the majority of vets and nurses won't actually know. And I, I just say the majority. There are some very, yeah, very good yeah. rabbit-aware practices. And, and, of course, the House Rabbit Association is now giving you know, gold rabbit status to practices, which is wonderful. So they're trying to encourage um, better, improved uh, rab- rabbit medicine and care. But it's not as good as it should be, that's for sure. It, it's not. And, and um, the, the other problem, the other side to that coin is – they can't get advice from the vets if they don't go to the vets in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. very few rabbits uh, and, and guinea pigs and any other exotic animal mm. are sold with the advice, 
take this to your vet. Yeah. Within yeah. within the, 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 the first week of ownership, mm. get some mm. advice on them mm. about this husbandry, mm. get them yeah. checked over yeah. and then come back. So uh, I've got there's a a guy down the road actually, very good uh, friend of mine that keeps rabbits and keeps them perfectly. Yeah, An absolutely wonderful owner. Mm. Uh, he's got some outside runs. He's got some inside uh, some house rabbits. Yeah, uh, keeps them really well in, and he he rescues rabbits mm. being neglected and, and brings a, a rabbit to be once once a month or so, a new rabbit to be once a month yeah. or so. Uh, with, with another sob story. Um, <laughs> last week, there was a, a three-year-old rabbit who uh, was the uh, the pet of a six-year-old girl mm. and had not been fed anything other than the variety mix. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just disaster, disaster. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, I, I can't do anything but give it a fairly poor prognosis. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see that we're going to be uh, uh, removing some teeth. We're going to be yeah. having an incidental every three to four weeks. Mm. Um, whether that's even enough, I don't know. But, mm. Mm. It's, but then, it's, you know, as a, as a profession, I mean, you know, having worked in an exotic referral service, I can say that we would regularly be seeing female entire rabbits with uterine adenocarcinoma. Mm. And okay, the latest the latest data is that probably it's not as common as it was once thought. So the old data was that fifty percent of three year old entire female rabbits would have uterine adenocarcinoma, and it's it's not that bad. No. But when you when you but know, they still think it's around thirty percent. Yeah, it's it's still a very very high level, mm. and and when you talk to the owner, um, you know they arrive and this rabbit's got hematuria. And you have a quick feel it's abdomen. You feel this walnut lump in its uterine area, and you said, "Well, you know, were you never given any advice to have it spayed?" And the answer comes back, "Oh, well, we discussed it with the vet, and they said the risk of giving a rabbit an anaesthetic was greater than the risk of it having uterine adenocarcinoma." So yeah. no, we weren't spared. Yeah. And and well, whereas know, their advice should be. As a practice, we're not comfortable with doing that. However, exactly, exactly. To yeah. this yeah. practice down yeah. the road, yeah. they are equipped to do it. It's yeah. a very safe procedure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, I mean, just to, to to cover that one off, the data is the anesthetic mortality level is twelve times it's higher than a dog. Yeah, yeah. And only thirty-eight percent of rabbits having a GA in the UK have their airway maintained that's, by that's either an ET tube or a V-gel. That's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. It is, yeah. you know, it is just ignorance, straightforward ignorance. Mm. And, you know, vets who, you know, you, you, you sign your RCVS charter and you say you're going to be a good person and you're going to look after the welfare of your patients. Above well, all, do no harm. Do no absolutely, harm. absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right, Julian, that you know, if you are not in a practice where you cannot provide a safe anesthetic and spay the rabbit, send it somewhere else. And I can honestly say, as a clinical service, giving anesthetics to rabbits, you know, three, four, five every day, um, our mortality level was very, very, very low. You know, I can't honestly think, you know, probably in all the time, two or three rabbits, it, you know, it would be no greater than it would be for a cat or a dog. Mm. And that's, and, and, you know, one of the take home messages is what you do regularly, you tend to be fairly good at. Yeah. 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 Hey, thank, thanks for that. I really, uh, really appreciate your, your, your view on that. I think, uh, I think that was, that was cracking. Hard. 
So anyway, so that's the first one. Now you want to talk about vultures, and what was the other one? Hang on. Drink. I, I want to oh, talk about empty. gin. You're empty. <laughs> Mike, are you going to go off and show us how to do a gin? I'm going to go off and show you how to make a proper gin. Great. Great. So right, Julian, we got we got rid of him, Julian. What would, what fantastic. should we talk about now? <laughs> Tonight, I'm going to make you up a really refreshing summer gin. Malfi pink grapefruit. So, as usual, before we start, I'm going to prepare the glass. I'm just zesting off some grapefruit. Now, Malfi say that their grapefruit are sun-ripened Sicilian pink grapefruit. I can't guarantee that this is a Sicilian ripened pink grapefruit, but all the same. In with the trademark meteorite. As Julian calls it, great big chunk of ice there. So, tonight we're just going to go for a straightforward double measure. Oh dear. Oh, that's sad. Oh dear. Oh well. What that means is we can save on the tonic water because we probably won't need that much in there. Here we go. Let's watch these bubbles go again. Sparkling, refreshing, aerating into the bottom of the glass. There we go. Malfi, pink grapefruit gin and fever tree diet tonic. Cheers. Shall anyway, we move on to vultures? Let's let's do that. Yes. Yeah. They are just gorgeous. People think they're ugly. They're really, really not. They are incre I think they're incredibly attractive. But the important thing to understand, I mean, firstly, vultures are the most endangered genre of birds uh in, in the world. Um and they are incredibly That's important. Surprising. I didn't know that at all, did you, Mike? What's that? As a total group, the vulture, the vulture group are more threatened globally than any other group of birds. So what, why wow. should that be? Well, um, for, firstly, let me tell you the benefits of vultures. So, okay. for example, on so, the Maasai Mara... If I could just sort of interject, I did have one once. Uh, I don't know whether I should admit this, but I, I, had, I, had, well, I had an HMV vulture for 20 quid. <laughs> HM, <laughs> HMV vulture. That's a voucher. All right, lost in the translation. So let's get serious here. Yeah. Okay. So, so first thing to explain is, for example, on the Maasai Mara, seventy-five percent of fallen stock is consumed by vultures. Okay. So they serve a very, very useful purpose. They are described as nature's cleanup crew. They have the ability to eat food that's contaminated with anthrax, with salmonella, with E. coli, etc., 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 and they neutralise it and poop out things that aren't dangerous. Okay. So they're really, really important. Now, in terms of massive vulture problems, the um, the first let's talk about vultures in Asia. Um, during the late 70s and the 80s, there was a massive decline of vultures in Asia. They lost literally 99.9% .9 of the total population. What? And, yeah, 99. Wow. And there was hundreds of thousands of vultures died. 
And this was basically down to, they, you know, got all the researchers in there, did some research, and they found that it was due to um, the use of a human and veterinary non-steroidal anti-inflammatory called diclofenac. Mm -hmm. And if um, cattle carcasses or human carcasses are medicated with this non-steroidal before death, and then the carcass is eaten by vultures afterwards, and just before anyone thinks this is strange, the Parsi uh, sect in India, historically, their, their method of uh, disposal of their bodies is to strap the carcasses in a tower and yep. they are eaten by vultures. So, you know, it is human carcasses and, and well, that's, um, that's a, animal that's carcasses. A type of, that's a type of sky burial, isn't it? Sky burial in areas like Tibet is where the body is taken to the top of a mountain mm -hmm. and then the funeral director will enable the birds to uh, dispose of the body. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's a traditional sky burial, isn't sure. it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so what we're getting at is 99.9% of, of Asia's vultures die due to diclofenic poisoning them in the late 70s and 80s, okay? Right. Now, was, was, was thankfully... Was um, gastric ulceration or, or liver uh, failure? Kidney, fa kidney failure. Kidney, kidney failure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah, situation... No, no, no. You, you no. can carry on drinking, Mike. Okay. Yeah. Good, good. You may have to drink more because of the diuresis with the renal failure, but you can carry on. Anyway, back, back to the serious matter. Um, all these vultures died, thankfully, due to um, a whole lot of people getting together, forming an organization called SAVE, which is Save Asian Vultures from Extinction. Mm -hmm. um, and they worked, so they, they found out the problem. They worked with the politicians and, generally speaking, have got diclofenic removed from the food chain. It's not completely effective, but, but in a greater part it is. Um, and then they've taken birds into captivity. They've been doing a captive breeding program and they've been releasing birds back to the wild. And it is, you know, slowly, bit by bit, it's all improving. Okay, so that, let's park Asia for a moment and move on to Africa. Africa's a much sorrier tale because Africa's vulture population has been going down for 50 years. So it's been going on a very, very long time. And we have lost 99% of the vultures in Africa, okay? Now, there are 11, 11 species of vulture in Africa, and of those, seven are either critically endangered or endangered. Four of them, there are less than 5,000 individuals left in the wild. That means for each of those four species, they are more endangered than a black rhinoceros. Okay? And two of them, the white-headed vulture... Oh, am I, am I, am I right in thinking the critical number is 2,000 still for bird populations? In, in terms of critical... It, it, it will vary from species to species. And I'll Doesn't that depend on the number of eggs and the... Exactly, exactly. But, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, two, two of those species, um, hooded vultures and white-headed vultures, are predicted to become extinct in the next five years. Gosh. Now, um, if, if we... So let's just touch on why population loss is a, is a problem for vultures. And as Mike intimated there, basically... Okay, it varies between species, but in general terms, vultures are not going to mature until they're four to six years old. Right. They, weigh, they lay one egg a year, and they rear one chick every other year. Okay? Hell. So, so they are not fecund. 
no. um, which means that you know if they are losing numbers then it really hits them very very hard and, that, and that's the point where the the total number left it would be much more critical with a vulture than it would be with anything else then let's move on to think about we, you know asia it was a it was a drug it was one thing remove it sorted okay let's move on to africa the, there is published data, but it, the actual reality varies from one area to another. Mm. So taking it bit by bit, um, the published data says that 9% of cases in South Africa are due to electricity pylons and, and electricity cables. Now, I had a meeting with ESCOM, and they admitted their own data tells us that 34% of all voucher losses are due to electricity power cables. Okay, 34%, right? Um, poisoning, and there's two forms of poison. There's accidental poisoning, yeah. um, which is, you can kind of sympathize. This is the subsistence farmer who's trying to control lion, hyena, and jackal so they don't come and take his goats and his sheep and his cattle, mm -hmm. okay? And if he loses stock, his, his family are going to go hungry, and you can understand that. Mm. But basically, he puts poison out, and then one way or another, the vulture gets hold of it, and they die. But if you look at the data, the numbers of vultures dying due to that has remained pretty constant and relatively low for a long, long time. Yeah. The big problem is malicious poisoning. Now, malicious poisoning is, is twofold. One, and we thought initially it was predominantly elephant poachers. Now, the issue is... If you shoot an elephant, it then takes you three-plus hours to take the tusks out, mm -hmm. by which time the vultures are circling, telling the rangers there's a carcass. So the poachers learned, if there are vultures in the area, we're more likely to get caught. So let's poison the vultures. Mm -hmm. So they would either poison a carcass mm -hmm. they left behind or poison a water source yeah. um, to, to try and kill off the vultures. And then we found out there was another way it was happening, and this was the rhino poaching. Now, traditionally, rhino poaching was people shooting rhinos, but then they realized that some of the anti-rhino poaching teams were using um, ballistic microphones to um, triangulate, to pinpoint where a ballistic was let off. And in some parks, it was incredibly accurate and effective. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to um, some of the rhino um, uh, protection team in Planersburg uh, National Park, which is the fourth largest park in South Africa. And they, in this particular year, they had had, eight, this was some while ago, because sadly it's got worse since, they'd had eight rhino poaching incidents in the year. But in six of the eight, they arrived before the poachers had got the horn off. Now, that was really impressive. That's so Absolutely. So what the poachers then took to doing was um, getting either cabbage or carrot and adding a poison to it, feeding it to the rhino, and then they'd walk behind the rhino until the rhino fell over, hmm. then they'd take the horn off. So there was no gun blast, okay? But yeah. guess what? The rhino carcass is poisoned. Course. The vultures come to eat the rhino carcass, they all die. Okay, so let's ask ourselves, how many vultures die as a result of each poisoning incidence? Now, if you'd asked me that question three, four months ago, I would have said, well, it can be anywhere between 50 and 600. 
in April this year. Sorry, in, per, per carcass. Per carcass. Per carcass. Yeah. Right. Do the sums. Do the sums. You and the, the reality is, you don't need very many poisoning incidents to wipe out thousands of vultures in a year. No, but in not April, with uh, that low fecundity. Yeah. yeah. In April this year, we had the largest so far poisoning instance in Guinea-Bissau, where more than 2,000 hooded vultures died in one poisoning incident. More than 2,000, okay? Now, bear in mind, there is somewhere around three to 3,500 hooded vultures at all, so over half and the population. Of the half the population went. And and the the reason why hooded vultures are particularly susceptible to to persecution and it is anticipated they will become extinct is because they're one of the species that is particularly desirable for black magic. And twenty nine percent of all vultures that die are mm. killed for their body parts to be used in black magic. Now, you say, well, what, why? And then you, you, you ask the question. It's a rotten it, chocolate anyway, isn't it? A rotten <laughs> There are other chocolates available. Other chocolates, and they're much nicer. Yeah. 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 No, the, if, you ask, if you ask the questions, okay, if you are a local African person and you get sick, where do you go? And the answer is 80% of people still go to a witch doctor. Mm even though it costs them more than going to a Western doctor, because it's their culturally. family have done it for generation after generation after generation, and they have faith in it. Yeah. Yeah. The SIBO effect and all that, okay? So the problem we have in Africa, we have accidental poisoning, we have malicious poisoning, we have power cables, and we have mutti. Those are the four causes. But you look at them. How many of those can we turn around in the short term? Well, we can battle with the power cable people. But you take South Africa as an example. ESCOM, it's a government-owned company. Mm-hmm. The company is completely bankrupt. They, you know, terrible, terrible financial problems. The government is not much better off, and particularly with COVID going on. You know, are they actually going to spend money on making the pylons properly safe and putting scarers on the cable? No, they're not. I had, a, like, I had a meeting. I had a meeting with them a couple of years ago with us with Escom. So I'd done my homework before I went in. I thought to myself, you know what? In this day of drones, there has to be a way. There has to be a solution. So I went home, did my homework, found a company in Slovakia that had developed a military-grade drone with a Y shape on the top of it that was actually flew up with the Y, clicked onto the cable, and they could put 250 scarers. These are like CD-ROMs on the cables so that the mm-hmm. birds see them and don't hit the cables. They put 250 on in a day. I, so I went to ESCOM with the technology how to do it, with the details of qualified drone pilots to do it for them. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. We have our own research department, and we will follow our own research, and we're not going to do it. But the reality so in is, in other words, we're not going to do it. Yeah, the reality is that um, no one is going to take Escom to court because it's a government-owned company, and they're going to get into trouble, and you know they, 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 it won't get solved. But but anyway, what I'm saying is the power cable situation should be solvable. The black magic, 
we can educate them, but it's it's a tough job. It, it's going to be a generational thing, isn't it? Well, it may be four or five generations, and we don't, have, we don't have that time. That's a multi-generational thing. It, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to go there. The, well, it, it, the, it the poise... The number of generations it takes to change will depend on the education within that area and, yeah, the, and the wealth within that area, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. The, the poisoning, um, the accidental is not a big, big problem. The, the, the malicious poisoning, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a big number of events. You know, it might only be mm. 15 events in Africa per year. But each event is so immensely damaging that um, well, you know, you're talking about uh, nine nine thousand dead if it's only fifteen events at the worst, aren't you? So, yeah, yeah. I was going to cover this this with you, Neil, because um, I I've travelled across Africa. Mm. I, I, I basically I did Livingston's expedition across Africa and down Africa. I've spent some yep. time. Um, living in Africa, and you're talking about South Africa, which, mm. on a scale of, absolutely of infrastructure, <laughs> yep. of nationalisation, yep. of education, yep. Yep. Um, awareness, mm. Mm. is right up here. Absolutely, absolutely. But and you look at places like, uh, and and this is not being depreciative. No, of no, 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 places no, like. No. Zambia, yeah. Zimbabwe, yeah. Malawi, yeah. Mm. Botswana. Um, well, Botswana. Well, Botswana's not too bad. Botswana's not too bad. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. But to, to put it in context with Kenya, okay, there's all these political issues, but I, you know, I've been communicating with people out there. I've been talking to the Veterinary Association and, and said, well, you know, it's fine. You can come and teach orthopedic surgery, but what you have to understand is our vets, if you're lucky, they treat cattle. That's it, period. Yeah. Yeah. They don't they don't treat cats and dogs. So mm. what hope do you think you've got that they're going to anesthetize and operate on a bird? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, mean, Neil, I, well, I, I would love to. A long time. Sorry? And uh, Malawi, um, they'd got two traveling vets mm. that would were prepared to to vaccinate and work with cats and dogs. Sure. Now that, sure. that situation has changed. Yeah, yeah. I, I was there working on a on a, a malaria HIV project. And mm. um, so this is human medicine. Yeah. And there were a whole series of things that happened mm. there that opened mm. my eyes to to the situation yeah. and Western influence yes. and, and our attempts to make Africa like America. And, and, and actually nowadays, the, the, the antagonism of the locals to that European Absolutely. involvement which and, is really quite significant. Is it? Massive. Massive. Yeah. And can yeah. you blame yeah. them? You know, yeah. I, I can't blame them. You know, I, I was no. known as Mike the Mzungu, and it took me probably two and a half months um, mm. before I was accepted yeah. amongst the village and mm. the next village in the, in the bush you know, and mm. everybody the case of the arrogant westerner coming in and teaching them what to do totally, how right yeah, they were. That, that's it that's exactly it Julian yeah um, and, and and it was a real struggle for me and I was working as I say in, in HIV and mm. malaria yeah but the, yeah. these were two massive mm. Mm. on the population mm. yeah um, so to be talking about their own wildlife yeah and, yeah. and all of this and yeah. whilst I was there Somebody approached me knowing my 
background in veterinary medicine. Mm. I had a background in veterinary medicine. And they also found out that I was a wild animal capture, certified mm-hmm. wild animal capture operator. Yeah. yeah. Did you not know this, Julian? Yeah, I knew that. You told oh, you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm probably the only certified wildlife capture operative in the south of England. But that's another story. Um, and they wanted, because um, Mozambique does not have any hippopotami. Right. The reason being, they've gone through a 25-year civil war. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to... What are we going to eat tomorrow? Absolutely, yeah. You know, the, the, the wildlife that we, we treasure and we praise and, 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 and we, we cherish mm, mm. becomes a food source for your family. Yeah, of course. Yep, of course. Yeah. And um, of, I, I was approached whilst I was working in Malawi, would I be involved in a wholesale relocation of hippopotami from Malawi to Mozambique? Mm-hmm. which is very interesting, um, except I, I said to the guys that I didn't really like some of the, the ideas that they were putting forwards. And so I applied to move my capture license from the UK to South Africa to learn how to do this properly mm-hmm. with species like hippopotami. Yeah. Deer, I have no problem with. Sure. I've been brought up with deer. I know what deer are going to do. I know mm. how they're going to react. I know how to knock a deer down. I know how to look after it. Mm. I'm sure, it's going to get up again oh. and go on its way. Hippopotami, mm, I've got learning to do. Mm. Mm. And it was interesting that I I, I applied for the, um, the South African course. Um, so to look at uh, boomer capture and chemical capture and immobilization. Mm. And I was denied this. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which is fair enough. Because I'm not a veterinary surgeon. Well, it's all, it's all about rhino poaching at the moment. I mean, the, the, the control is over the availability of the drugs used for Absolutely. game capture is very, very strict for that yeah, reason. For that reason. And, and of yeah. course, because um, a number of poachers are using knockdown drugs. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you're talking there about um, diclofenac. Mm. Um, because obviously in deer population in the UK, we have to be very careful as to which drugs we use, and if we use certain drugs, mm. that animal has to be tagged yep, so that yep, it doesn't yep. enter the human food, food chain. chain. Yeah, yeah, sure. That that said, I, I do know a number of um, people who have eaten carcasses of, that yeah. have been yeah. knocked down with yeah. drugs that are <laughs> magic rum, magic mushrooms all over again. Yeah, yeah, we're Absolutely. not going to get into that. <laughs> Julian on that. Seriously, let's, let's stay on the topic here. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking- Neil, I would, I would love to. I mean, we'll have a chat later and see if there's any way that, that I could get involved from a veterinary point of view. But well, for our listeners, before you, before you do that, Julian, before you yeah. do that, I, I, I think, what is it, Neil, that we can do? Yeah, and our listeners can do. I just asked help. I think there's lots of things that we can be doing. I think the difficulty is that politically, a lot of it is not acceptable. Right. Um, if you um, and, and my view is, you know, right at the moment, if we look at the African vultures, it seems crazy 
that we have we only have significant populations of captive vultures in Africa. And Africa is a country with endemic avian influenza, Newcastle disease, um, West Nile fever, uh, etc. So, I mean, one thing would make a lot of sense is to actually shift uh, breeding collections of unreleasable wild birds to other parts of the world, America, Europe, wherever. Um, because we need to have a safe population so that if we, you know, if, if extinction of some of these species happens, which, you know, I hate to say, whatever we do seems incredibly likely. If we have a reasonable, successfully breeding population elsewhere in the world, firstly, they can be used for education, for publicity, for conservation, but they can be bred and population can be increased such that if we reach a time let's say in 30 40 years in africa where species of vulture have disappeared but the education and publicity has got to a point probably because the vultures have disappeared the people then actually appreciate their value we then have populations go back again so so really i think it's about publicity it's about education it's making people aware you know those four species of vulture i talked to you about are rarer than black rhinoceroses one of the positive things i should say there are some positives one of the positive things in south africa is the setting up of a network of vulture restaurants so places where vultures are fed safe food i'm so glad it's that way round i was going to say what well, the ones that didn't get back here <laughs> Um, you mentioned Vulture Alliance as well, Neil. Yeah. The Vulture Alliance is the organization that we set up under the charitable umbrella of the International Center of Birds of Prey at Nuance, uh, which is the organization for, for those of us who can go and teach people in Africa. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's voluntary teaching, but basically what we were looking for is people to fund uh, the the materials we use in the teaching. So uh, the pins and, and and that sort of stuff. Fortunately, the equipment we use gets loaned to us uh, very generously by veterinary instrumentation. Um, but, you know, it does cost something in terms of air flights. We normally get driven around and so on when we're there, so that's not a problem. Uh, but there are some costs. So uh, people can make donations uh, to the International Center of Birds of Prey. And if you put in brackets, Vulture Alliance, to make sure it does go to the vulture work. Mm-hmm. Volpro itself, I started saying, uh, because I've been working with them for, for some years. And just to explain what we've done with the rehabilitation. Historically, birds come in, rehabbers do the best they can. So we instituted a few new things. They get tested for parasites. They have a PCV and a white blood cell check. So if they have an infection, they know about it. If they are anemic, they know about it. We, um, we realize the published data is that two different papers have come out stating uh, the level of lead poisoning or the incidence of lead poisoning in wild vultures is 12 to 32%. Okay, so a percentage of birds that come into care have got lead poisoning, subclinical or clinical <laughs> lead poisoning. Where, 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 where are they getting this lead from? Because they eat carcasses that have been shot. Okay. okay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, so lead poisoning is, is an issue. And then also, um, we, we got an epoch machine down there, kindly supported um, by quantum uh, laboratories. And uh, obviously, we bought the reagents. And we were testing them for ionized calcium. 
Because if you think about it, um, farmers poison the lion, the jackal, the hyena. Okay. Every bird of prey needs a whole carcass diet, bone and meat. Mm -hmm. How does a vulture get bone? Because the bones of the carcasses that a vulture eats are very big. They're way too big for a vulture to eat. Yeah. So the Mm -hmm. way they get bone is because the lion, the jackal, and the hyena have come along and tune the bones up. And then the vultures eat the chips. Yeah. Okay. So the farmers have killed off the lions, the jackal, and the hyena. There aren't any bone chips. So a a significant percentage of young vultures leaving the nest, leaving the cliff edge, fail to fly on that first flight. And when we were there last time, time before, when we introduced the EPOC testing, you know, ionized calcium level should be around 1 to 1.1. And we had the first vulture that came in, young vulture, off its legs, collapse, level ionized calcium less than 0.25. Basically unsustainable with life. But you know what? Just having that testing kit where you can, every bird that comes in can be tested so, you're, so all of a sudden, we were testing for infection, we were testing for anemia, we were testing for lead, we were t- and we were testing for ionized calcium. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we can start doing scientific, better quality rehabilitation. Yeah. And then at the same time, because we trained a whole lot of people to do orthopedic surgery, the Volpro had a number of different places they could go to to get the surgical jobs done. Yeah. Volpro since then have now developed their own veterinary facility, but they have no equipment in it. Their next task is to raise money to equip it, and then they will get volunteers going on a rotational basis to do the veterinary work. So that's how our viewers can help. This is the ICB. This is the International Centre of Birds of Prey at Newans, but they, they are the governing body under which Volpro Alliance is formed. Right. So, okay. so if, if, donate, if people donate to this, I've told ICBP that anyone who donates at this time, that money is for Vulture Alliance. Because actually that, that's a very right. important thing. We can, all, we can all look through the internet and, and find uh, charities to donate to, but, but it's making sure the money goes to the right place. Yes. So yeah. ICBP, the International Centre for Birds of Prey, National Centre for Birds of Prey. Right, and, and okay. they do with the money and they'll, they'll send it through but, to... But they basically, well, they won't send it to Valpro. They, they, that will be for Vulture Alliance and that will fund flights for myself or myself and Jemima or my wife Karen to go to Kenya or wherever else we have to go to. If you want to give money to Volpro, that would also that's an alternative. Now, you can't do that through Facebook because they're not a charity. They're a not-for-profit organisation. Uh, which basically means the same in South African terms, but it means Facebook won't list them. So Volpro, but you, if you contact Volpro, they've got a website, contact them and just ask them for bank details and you can make a donation to okay. them. So they are desperate for equipment for their veterinary hospital. And I know they have a bad press. People think they're ugly, they're dirty, they eat rotten stuff. But, you know, they serve a really, really important function in the ecosystem. Let me give you a figure. When we had that crash of vultures in Asia, 99.9% of vultures happened. What mm-hmm. happened? The feral dogs increased dramatically. Feral dogs very commonly infected with rabies. There was mm-hmm. an increase of 600,000 human deaths from rabies, predominantly children, 
because the vultures had died, because the dogs went up and they got rabies and they spread it to the children. And to people who can't, to people who can't actually see this at this point in time, it's appalling, isn't it? What we're doing is we're showing a a, a fantastic picture of a vulture. That's uh, a hooded vulture. That that's one of the ones that that sadly probably won't be with us in five years' time. I'm I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari, right? uh, Which is it's it's a history of the of the human human race. Disaster! Disaster! Yeah, it is. It's a disaster, complete disaster. Uh, we we are responsible for yep. you know, every single uh, mass extinction. Yep. Obviously, we, we we can't be blamed for the dinosaurs. But we uh, if if we'd been around, then we would have been. Yeah, yeah, sure. But um, sure. Uh, no, every every single uh, mass extinction in in the in the previous thirty thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, have been directly attributable to, to, to humans. Yep. And now we're facing our own. And now we're facing, well, I don't think we are, but we're, we're going to take a few out um, with us when we go. What about the pangolin? You know, the most trafficked sm- oh. um, species in the world, pangolins. And, you know, I, I love I've, pangolins. I've they seen, are amazing looking. They are such cute little animals. They're running along on their back legs and that great big long tongue coming out. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, absolutely wicked. And I, I saw data some years ago about the, the, the numbers of tons, and you're talking about 100, 120, 160 tons of pangolin meat seized in Hong Kong on its way to China. Yeah. And if you think that each pangolin weighs between three and six kilo, that's a hell of a lot of pangolins. It's a huge number. You think, yeah. how, how could there be that number already in the world? Well, and, 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 and the terrible thing is... That's the ones that were seized. Yeah, and, and when, they far, when they started seizing them, what they were getting were the Asian pangolins. Guess what? There aren't any now. Now, the ones they're seizing are the African pangolins. And guess what? Give it another three or four years, there won't be any left. Yeah, yeah, and it's all because certain people in certain countries want to eat them. You know, or, eating, or, eating the scales is bad, and and then the real delicacy is having a pangolin fetus in your soup. How sick is that? It's so sick, and and also the belief that actually the scales are going to help in some yep. medical way. Yeah, yeah, yep. very sad, very yeah. sad, very very sad. I, I, I don't quite know how we move from that, which is. A, a very important and an appropriate um, comment. Um, quite how we move from that to our well, well-earned CPD certificate, and uh, potentially the end of our show. Well, I, I think I think we must move. We, we we've got this third aspect, which is antimicrobial resistance. But I think, to be perfectly honest. I'm not inclined to follow that tonight because, no. quite frankly, we, we don't deserve as a human race to get ourselves better with with, uh, with antimicrobials no. tonight. No. Let's leave that, if we could, Neil, for another another night. Would, would you come You mean back? you're going to do me again? Yeah. We'll do you again, sir. We'll yeah. do you again. Yes, certainly. No, I'm very happy. And, and that is very much one of my other hobby horses is infection. Well, not only antimicrobial resistance, because that's only one... one no, no. 
one spoke to the wheel. Um, it's infection control and biosecurity in veterinary practice is the yeah. biggest issue. And, and obviously, antimicrobial resistance is part of that. In a way, antimicrobial resistance is, um, is, is bolting the gate after the horses. Whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the sad reality is ever since Florence Nightingale, uh, well, Alexander Fleming, really, mm -hmm. we, we have relied on antibiotics to allow us to get away with sloppy, sloppy hygiene and infection yep. control. Absolutely. And, and it's absolutely fundamentally wicked. And as a society, we, we need to do better. And as a profession, we need to do an awful lot better. On that note... However, you mentioned, you mentioned CPD. Yeah. Yeah. And... and, and wow, Neil. Oh. Thank you so so much julian have you got a cpd certificate tonight i, I just happen to have one here go on. have one. oh brilliant there we How go about that there we oh go. yes another Gen quality. gentle viewer and a vulture CPD. i love it fantastic there we go, there uh, we well go. Done, it says. um it says if you've made it this far gentle viewer then you probably know more about something than you did a while ago. <laughs> and I think that's fair. That's a fair in comment. In all innocence, I wrote this earlier, in all innocence, thinking we're going to have a great chat because Neil Forbes is a fantastic speaker, incredibly well-respected yeah. expert in various fields, many, many fields. Tonight, I, I, we use the word humbled, don't we, far too often. I've been humbled by that. I've been humbled by that. Absolutely. I've been truly humbled, Neil, by what you had to say. And... Um, my goodness me, that there's going to be a lot for me to to uh, to think about tonight with, yeah. with, with vultures there's, there's and no, with conservancy in general. No, Good. no question. Good. Thank you so Good. much. Good. Pleasure. It, um, we haven't. We have. Yes. Yeah. Tea? Yeah. Time out. Time out. Because in order for this to be verified by yeah. the RCVS now, our various governing bodies, it's all very well one thing doing the CPD certificate. Receiving the certificate, yeah, yeah. but we do, of course, have to reflect on this. We do. And, we do. And so, you know, Neil, absolutely amazing. Thank you very much indeed. You've educated, I think, Pleasure. well, certainly me. Um, and, and, and me, immensely. And, and, over your, our, and I'm our, sure most of our viewers <laughs> and listeners as well. Um, but we do, of course, have to pause for reflection. So let's take a moment just to pause and reflect on our CPD this evening. Neil, you're not taking this seriously. Got to reflect. He's drinking cider. I don't, I, I just saw it. He just took a big Did you not read the email? <laughs> Julian, Julian, uh, this time of the evening, ordinarily you would tell us a joke. Do you know, I've, I've got one. I've got Go one. On. I thought uh, I thought Neil might like. I say that he's not going to like it because it's crap, isn't it? In the space where all my jokes are, but yeah, most of his jokes are Neil. Not not most, not most. All humour him without fail. <laughs> a few years ago, some friends of mine got together and they held a twenty first birthday party and invited me to it. Twenty first birthday party. I said, who, who, "Who's uh, whose birthday is it?" They said, "It's the twenty first anniversary of most of your jokes." <laughs> <laughs> 
So he, he, he's one and you said them. the old ones are the best ones. <laughs> and, they, and they didn't agree. They didn't. <laughs> but, but this is, this is about, um, it's about a cat burglar. It's not someone who steals cats, but a, a cat burglar. It'll scale yes. this, uh, this high Building. wall, yes. got into, got yeah. into the compound of this uh, wealthy mansion at night climbed in through a high window and dropped down into the room they thought was the most likely to hold all the all the jewels and, mm-hmm. uh, and special mm-hmm. things. So it was showing a torch around the place. And, and the torch lit up this wonderful case full of jewels. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to get rich tonight. There's diamonds and rubies. There's emeralds. Gold, look at this. I'm going to be fantastically wealthy. So he started unpicking the lock to this jewel cabinet and suddenly he heard, Jesus is watching you. (laughs) Turned around. (laughs) Nothing there. Nothing there. So he carried on opening this jewel case. (laughs) Jesus is watching. (laughs) And his his torch caught, caught this parrot. Sitting on a perch, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, "But was it you that said that? Jesus is watching you. It was you. Well, you're a talking parrot. Oh yes. Gosh, you're clever, aren't you? Yeah, Jesus is watching you. Yeah, all right. Well, what's your name? Archimedes. Archimedes. He says that's a strange name for a parrot. Yeah, and Jesus is a strange name for a Rottweiler. He's still fucking watching you, isn't he?" <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> on, on that note, on, on that, that note, can that I note. say, if you've liked what you've seen tonight, and thank you so much, Neil Forbes. Pleasure, for, pleasure. For bring Thanks. us into your, into your life in that regard. So, if you've liked what you've seen, tick like, share, like it on Facebook. Watch it on Spotify or all of the other media platforms that we're on. Listen to us. Tick like. Let us know you're out there. And we'll do what we can to bring you more content like we've done this evening. So on that note, can I wish you good evening? And may your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Cheers, Cheers. Neil. Thank you very much indeed, Neil. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be with you guys. Neil, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. It's been fun. Have you enjoyed yourself? Yes, I have. I think you know that. You know that. Go on. (laughs) You know me well enough, Mike. (laughs) It's been fabulous to have you on. Good. Pleasure. 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 Oh, Oh, do you know, that was best ever, I think. That was fantastic. That was incredible. Yeah. there, there There were huge amounts where we said... Absolutely bugger all because we didn't need to. I think I think we could pretty much send it out without our input at all. I think we could, but the the, the potential issue there is that this is our brand. I know. <laughs> yes, I thought you bastard. Why, why didn't you invite us in? Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> really good. Shut up, Neil. This is our show, not yours. Yeah, for fuck's sake! <laughs> Enough about vultures. Yeah, I'm just I'm blown away by that. I, incredible. Mm. Incredible. So, Mike, have you started your Christmas shopping yet? Christmas shopping? Is it that time of year already? No, nah, it's always good to be organised. You don't want the last-minute rush to find the perfect gift. Gifts? That reminds me. 
Do you know what would make a wonderful Christmas gift? Gin? Well, yeah, but do you know what's better than gin? More gin? No, no, go, go on, go on. Our great new veterinary ramblings merchandise. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I'd love to find those in my Christmas stocking. Well, let's see what Santa brings for you. One of our tapir badges, pin badges, perhaps? Oh, I'd love that. Or, Mike, what about a framed photo? Uh, one of the copies of Phil Lamette's exotic animal photographs. That would look lovely in my office, alongside George's beautiful you greeting cards. Wow. I mean, I've got to say thank you to all of the talented people that have provided us with these lovely gifts to give you all for supporting our Kickstarter. If you'd like to get ahead of your Christmas shopping or buy some treats for yourself, head on over to kickstarter.com, not Kickstarter, but kickstarter.com and search for Veterinary Ramblings Podcast Fundraiser to see the different packages we have available. <laughs>